Twitter's early engineers faced scalability problems that caused infrastructure failures on a regular basis. Remember the infamous fail whale? The fail whale could happen as a result of problems in the application servers, the network, or the database layer. When Twitter was scaling in its early days, the cloud providers were still immature. Engineers did not have access to the auto-scaling cloud infrastructure that's available today. And the early Twitter infrastructure was a combination of open-source tools and internally created architectures that were custom-built for Twitter's workloads. Evan Weaver was an early engineer at Twitter, and he saw the deficiencies of the data tools that the company had access to. Twitter engineers wanted access to a truly reusable data platform that would fit Twitter's requirements. High availability, globally replicated, and transactionally consistent. By 2012, Evan had left Twitter and started consulting for other technology companies. He found that databases across the industry were lacking the same properties that Twitter wanted, and the ideas for FaunaDB began to percolate. Around this time, there were two relevant papers about distributed databases that had come out. The Spanner paper from Google, and the Calvin paper, a distributed systems paper from Yale. With inspiration from the literature, and from his time at Twitter, and from his knowledge consulting across the industry, Evan Weaver started FaunaDB. Seven years later, FaunaDB is a fully-fledged open-source project, as well as a database company with a cloud service offering. FaunaDB is a database for transactional workloads that are online and mission-critical. It's an OLTP database used by companies like NVIDIA, Nextdoor, and Capital One. Evan joins the show to talk about his time spent scaling Twitter and the architecture of FaunaDB. We have a few upcoming events to announce. We have a meetup at Cloudflare on the 6th of April in San Francisco. And we also have a meetup on April 6th that is a hackathon at App Academy in San Francisco. On April 3rd, Hasib Qureshi will be joining me for a conversation about cryptocurrencies, engineering, his time at Airbnb, and life as a professional poker player before he became a software engineer and investor. That'll be a great evening. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup to find out more about that. And our hackathon can be found at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash hackathon. It's both a virtual hackathon and an in-person hackathon. And the prize purse is $5,000. So your coolest projects, your coolest hacks can be entered in to win the $5,000 prize purse. You can be working on a open source project, a game, an art project. The goal of the hackathon is to check out and test out a new product that I'm working on called Find Collabs. So you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash hackathon or findcollabs.com slash hackathon to find out more. And any feedback you have on my new product, Find Collabs, would be much appreciated. With that, let's get to today's episode. Evan Weaver, you are the CEO and founder of FaunaDB. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Great to be here. You were an early infrastructure engineer at Twitter. Tell me about data management in the early days of Twitter. So I joined Twitter in 2008. I was employee number 15. And 
At the time I joined, it was total chaos. And when I left, it was partial chaos. So we made huge progress on the, the platform and the product and the, and the business side in the four years I was there. I ended up running what we called the infrastructure team. And we managed all the backend distributed storage for the core business objects. So that means tweets, timelines, users, the social graph, image storage, the cache, probably some other storage that I forget. We also worked on runtime performance across the board. And if you, re- if you remember in the, in the bad old days of a decade ago, you know, it was basically pre-cloud. APIs were new and weird. You know, this idea that services would be composed was, was just coming back to the forefront after everyone got super burned by XML and SOA and like kind of the J2EE revolution or devolution. And there's a renaissance in data systems and building scalable storage, mostly predicated on social media, which Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, were all, were all you know, in the mix at the time. And my, my mandate was really to keep throughput going. The way to grow the site was to deliver throughput because we were essentially redlined all the time. All the machines were running at 100% utilization. We would double the hardware footprint every year. On top of that, we'd deliver about a 20% increase in software efficiency every month. And, you know, there was unlimited demand for tweets, especially via the API. And when, when, when I started there, you know, I didn't know a lot about scalable databases. I basically had a performance analyst background. I worked at CNET Networks before that with the team that went on to found GitHub. You know, I was just trying to keep the site up. But to do that, you know, we evaluated a lot of off-the-shelf data solutions with legacy SQL, like the MySQL systems we were already using when I got there, as well as up-and-coming distributed or so-called NoSQL solutions like Mongo, Cassandra, that kind of thing. And we basically found that nothing worked. So we ended up building these sharding services that managed legacy storage engines, specifically NLDB and Redis and that kind of thing. But me and my team, which, you know, grew over time, we're always frustrated that there wasn't a general purpose operational data platform that could both scale and be reliable and be flexible for new product development. And effectively, that's what Fauna is. All of those databases that were available to Twitter at that time were not sufficient for your workloads. Why not? What was so unprecedented about the Twitter workloads? It was effectively the scale you know, Twitter was a soft, still is a, a soft real-time system, and growth was genuinely exponential for at least the first, you know, the first three or four years of that part of the curve. And the premise of the NoSQL revolution, and for for example, my team at Twitter was the first user of Cassandra outside of Facebook. We fixed the build because it didn't compile. I wrote the first tutorial. We hosted the first meetup. You know, the hook for Cassandra was that it could scale. You you had to give up everything else. You know, you had to give up transactions. You had to give up foreign keys. You had to give up any kind of data integrity, basically, to follow the, the, the original Dynamo model. But it could scale. And scale was really the limiting factor for the growth of these social platforms. And Twitter, in particular, was wildly hardware constrained and, and behind the curve in terms of planning for this level of growth, unlike Facebook, which was deploying a lot more hardware per user and initially had been managing their growth in a more measured way, you know, going from school to school, effectively following broadband penetration rather than mobile penetration the way Twitter was. So we had kind of Twitter, Facebook leading the charge and a lot of other teams, companies, startups in the mix. 
who were looking at the kind of scale they had to deliver, especially deliver cost effectively and, and having to reject everything off the shelf. You know, there were systems that ostensibly could scale like MySQL cluster or Oracle rack, but either the, the scalability was very limited, you know, once you get beyond a dozen nodes, you're done, or the, the, the pricing didn't make sense for the, the advertising-driven business models, that kind of thing. So essentially everyone in the market at the time, on the social media side of the equation, who was trying to basically buy a database, whether that means through open source or otherwise, had, had to do a very unusual evaluation where we had to say, you know, nothing works, nothing is even marketed to work, but what systems have the correct underlying architecture to continue to scale for, you know, the next 10x, the next 100x period of our growth? You did use Cassandra. Describe what was new about Cassandra when it came out. So Cassandra, Cassandra came out of Facebook. It was written at Facebook by the team that had originally done the, the first Dynamo implementation for Amazon Shopping Cart. And to be clear, Cassandra and Dynamo took a, a very strange journey where Dynamo was implemented at AWS or at Amazon pre-AWS. Cassandra was effectively a clone of it at Facebook. Then because Cassandra started to take off as an independent project, when AWS started to rise up, they re-implemented Cassandra, called it DynamoDB, mostly to capture some of that market in particular because Cassandra was very difficult to operate. But the thing that Cassandra really had going for it was this homogenous scale out. And, you know, it was one of the first systems at the time that even had a prayer of offering multi-data center support where you could take commodity machines, keep adding them into a running cluster and keep scaling it up. Everything else was based on, you know, the primary replica kind of asynchronous architectures. All writes had to go through this single machine. You had to vertically scale it, which became increasingly untenable, especially in the cloud, um, and especially given the hardware capacity at that time. And I think, I think the industry was in a very unusual spot where you had a bunch of companies on the same social media market whose growth was aggressively outstripping Moore's Law, and where you know now you might see someone scale farther up vertically on Postgres or what have you than you did at, at, at that time. It just wasn't an option given the rate of growth of these systems. And that really you know, created this, this renaissance in database technology where people said, you know, we're not satisfied with the RDBMS. You know, there's a lot of good things here, but from an operational and cost and scale out perspective, it, it no longer is, is fit for purpose. Why didn't that renaissance happen within the Cassandra ecosystem? I mean, Cassandra was part of the renaissance, but I think you're basically asking, you know, why didn't Cassandra deliver on that long-term platform promise? I think that's a nuanced question. A lot of it is situational. These systems are just really hard to build. It's, It's hard to build a durable, reliable, highly available, you know, database on a single node. The conventional wisdom used to be that it takes 7 million bucks to build a mature database. Well, it turns out that's not even really true. It's more realistic to say, you know, after the move to distributed systems, it takes 20, 25 million bucks to build a distributed a distributed operational database, which is actually reliable. So you had a lot of these projects, including Cassandra, kicking off. And Mongo is another one, getting some early market traction and then trying to play catch up with, you know, these basic, what we would consider legacy database capabilities like transactionality and constraints and durability and that kind of thing. And a a lot of that work was pushed onto developers 
to, to manage. And we got eventually consistent systems. We got tunable consistency, all that kind of stuff, which basically says, you know, the database can't actually deliver the guarantees that you're accustomed to, but we, we give you some primitives that hopefully you can compose in your application to make it more or less work. I think Cassandra, you know, because these systems got picked up in open source early, then they became highly path constrained by their early adopters, by the use cases that did initially work, which were all the non-mission critical ones because they weren't durable, they weren't transactional, and that kind of distracted these teams for a really long time from investing in, in the fundamental architectures of the system. But at the same time, I think the thing that really changed, you know, the market's perception of what is possible in a distributed database was Google Spanner. Because it, it's kind of conventional wisdom now, but if you remember before Spanner was announced, because Cloud Spanner came out like two years ago, the Google Spanner paper came out five or six years ago. Before that, it was widely believed and also, you know, continually marketed by the NoSQL vendors that distributed acid transactions were literally impossible. So it was kind of like this cold fusion class effort where people said, you know, in theory, maybe there's a way, but in practice, no one's ever going to get there. And that kind of mentality persisted and that, that worse is better mindset was continually promoted until the Google spanner came out and they said, no, we actually did it. And then that, that, you know, sort of planted the seed for a bunch of projects internal and external to start pursuing higher levels of of durability and consistency in a distributed scale-out data platform. We'll get to talking about Spanner a little bit more, but I want to get back to your experience at Twitter so that we can make it concrete for people what the consequences of these failures at the database layer were. What was going wrong in the data layer and how did those failures cascade to user level problems? So Twitter's Twitter's data layer evolved, you know, through a, a classic series of steps. Initially it was a, a single MySQL box. I think it was hosted in, in Joyant. Literally a single box, you know, a, a hot spare replica that wasn't otherwise used. And then you start reading from the spares then you start vertically partitioning the tables to get to get more capacity per table and separate clusters. Then you start, you know, doing some temporal partition. You end up with the system sharded by hand six ways from Sunday. The next step we had to take that system to is the true sharded architecture, kind of similar to Vitesse. We had a system called Gizzard internally, which was basically equivalent to Vitesse, which managed sharding across a bunch of commodity boxes, but node replacement was still effectively manual. And if you notice, you know, at each step of this trajectory, the system becomes more special purpose, more focused on just servicing the queries that Twitter needed at that time to scale. And it did scale and it was super fast, especially the timeline system was incredibly fast and incredibly efficient, which, and these systems are still used today, like the social graph and the timeline system for that reason. But the thing that they really didn't deliver was not, you know, the scale, it was the flexibility. Because if you don't have a general purpose platform, it becomes very difficult to develop new products in a cost-effective way. Experiments become very costly because you have to deliver them all at scale with special purpose distribution code just for that new feature or that new product line. I think that's, that's the biggest thing that was lost along that journey. Like We had no choice at the time. We had to keep the site up. But we didn't have the investment horizon from the business to really build that general purpose reusable platform that would let the developer w- work completely abstractly from the underlying 
scalability and consistency primitives of their of their data sets. You started FaunaDB in 2012. Describe the initial spec for the database you wanted to build. So we, we started the, the company as a consulting company. We had built all these systems at Twitter, but we didn't want to just replicate, you know, the social graph system in some kind of commercial context. We weren't convinced that was a, a broad enough, you know, use case. So we wanted to explore the data market generally. And we did consulting with a lot of startups in particular and some larger companies trying to understand, you know, what are non-Twitter class data problems? So we know what Twitter needed. We know what Facebook needed. But what does everyone need? to get both scale and product flexibility long-term. We discovered that the market was, was, was suffering from effectively, you know, part of this worse is better mindset, in particular polyglot persistence, where, you know, no, nothing is really good in general, but we'll try to glue together five different systems so that at least, you know, in aggregate, all the checkboxes are checked, but they don't compose. So there'd always be like a MySQL or a Postgres for transactional workloads. And then there'd be some table that didn't scale that was moved into a key value store like Cassandra or Dynamo. Then there'd be something that needed to be cached. So it would be copied into Redis or Memcache. And then, you know, there'd be a bus like Kafka to try to glue it together. There'd be Elasticsearch to enable different indexing patterns. And you exit this process, which is a completely you know rational process, but your data sets duplicated 15 times across five different clusters. You're spending a million bucks on Amazon a year, and your engineering productivity has gone underwater because you spend all your time on maintenance and integration. And we said, you know, this isn't necessary. Information science doesn't demand that all these systems are, are separate. The problem here is that there's no... There's no underlying platform which has solved the CS problem of, of delivering them together in industry. You know, a lot of the academic literature, too, was, it was still kind of this point solution mindset. Like, we took this one system, we iterated on it, modified it a little bit, we made it better along this one dimension, and then we just left it. So the general purpose nature of the original transactional database was totally lost. After we saw that pattern repeated several times we decided if we didn't if we didn't build it it was never going to get done and we moved into product prototyping and product development and we we raised venture capital in 2016 um we raised our seed round from crv and then in the end of 2017 we raised our series a from google ventures in 0.72 there is a term you're using here data platform and this is a term that's come up more and more in the last couple of years in the interviews that that we've had on the show. Is there a notable difference between the terms database and data platform? Yeah, there is. And that's part of the genesis of Fauna. And that's part of the, the, the reason for the name. At Twitter, we had a lot of product features and product lines that were backed by individual distributed or sharded databases. But if you, if you look at what's fundamental to a platform and what really made, you know, SQL and Oracle system R back in the day so revolutionary is that you got leverage from composing multiple applications and multiple features in the same system. You could integrate through the data set. You could rely on the database to enforce fundamental dimensions of your, your business model 
that made it much easier for everyone else upstream to do your job. I think I think the difference between a database and a data platform is is whether the system has leverage, and we've put a lot of effort into Fauna to make sure that that leverage is there based on our experience at Twitter, in particular, for example, the multi-tenancy system, and the quality of service system. Like we offer Fauna as a serverless cloud product as well as an on-prem or managed cloud product. But our serverless cloud is not deploying, you know, a VM for each person who signs up. It's one global Fauna cluster, and we dynamically provision a tenancy within it. And then that gives us tremendous leverage operationally because we can scale it in aggregate instead of individually. If it was composed of individual databases, the way RDS or something in Amazon currently is, you don't get any sharing of resources. You don't get sharing of operational burden. And it's also worse for your users because, you know, now it's expensive to create a database. There's a fixed cost. Like that fixed cost destroys your leverage. To get into what you did to build FaunaDB, we should talk about some of the important papers that came out in 2012 that relate to FaunaDB. There's the Spanner paper from Google, which you mentioned earlier, and the Calvin paper, which I had heard less about before doing this show. Explain the relevance of these two papers, Calvin and Spanner. So pre-Spanner, it was widely believed that distributed, consistent transactions were impossible. And the way Spanner solved this problem was by synchronizing multiple data centers on atomic clocks. There are effectively three generations now of distributed transactional architecture. The first, which also came from Google, was Percolator. Percolator basically doesn't scale beyond a single data center. There's one machine which issues timestamps to all readers and writers. If you're not in the local data center to that machine, you have to go to that data center to get the timestamp. So it's effectively equivalent to, you know, your primary replica traditional mode of replicating a SQL database, but, you know, scaled up to the data center scale. What Spanner did was say, well, we can get these timestamps via physical atomic clock hardware. And if we know the boundaries in which those clocks can drift, we can guarantee, in particular, we can guarantee strict serializability or what they call external consistency, which is the highest level of transactional isolation. And this was mind-blowing for the industry because it now let you do fast reads and writes with acid isolation in a truly global, truly replicated, truly no single point of failure way. But at the same time, the Spanner paper was being published. The Calvin paper was being published by Daniel Abadi's team at Yale at the time. Calvin inverted the model and said, rather than synchronizing the transactions on the time, you know, what if we bundle transactions up ahead of time and we effectively synchronize the time on the transactions which have been bundled together? And the, the big benefit of this attitude towards the replication of the transactions themselves is, is that it's no longer reliant on this physical hardware. You don't have to operate anything special. You don't have to understand your clock skew. You don't have to manage anything. It's a pure software solution. But the Calvin paper was basically ignored at the time. And I think there are a couple reasons for that. One reason is that the way the, the replication properties were articulated was in the context of being global. And people interpreted that to mean that it was similar to Percolator. Somewhere there was a single machine which everything had to synchronize on, rather than correctly interpreting it as being logically global, saying we're we're creating a global order, 
But in implementation, there's nothing global about it at all. It's partitioned and scalable and highly available, just like you would want everything to be. And the second, the second thing about it was that Calvin requires transactions to be essentially pre-declared before they're submitted to the database for execution. So it, it, it's a little difficult to adapt a traditional SQL model to it, although it is possible because SQL is built around a session transaction model where you open a, open a transaction, read some stuff, your application messes with the data, write some stuff, read some more stuff, application interferes again, eventually it calls commit. And Calvin requires the transaction to be predefined. So that means you, know, you can't open and close a transaction at separate periods of time. And I can talk about how we work around this in, in, in Fauna. But basically, this meant people took the paper and said, oh, that's a cool idea, but you know, it's not really applicable to the real world. We don't really understand how it's, it's different than Percolator. And it wasn't until we picked it up in industry, lo- looking for you know, what, what's genuinely best fit for purpose for a, a cloud-native, multi-data center scale-out NoSQL solution that it started to get attention again. Just so we don't bury the high-level motivation for what we're talking about here, explain how these innovations that were coming out of these papers, how did they uh, the, offer solutions to the problems of social network database scalability that you were thinking about when you were encountering these problems at Twitter? So you, you, you cannot... You cannot solve your productivity problems, in our opinion, unless you can rely on your, your database to be correct. You know, Twitter has an internal project called Manhattan, which shares a lot of similar goals to, to Fauna on the outside for, for the same reason. You know, if you think about writing a traditional application, the, the burden the developer has to take on if they can't rely on their database to, to essentially work is tremendous. You end up dealing with like, you know, quorum consistency guarantees or lack thereof. Um, CRDTs and other complex data types, which have nothing to do with the actual product goals of, of the products you're building. But, you know, that, that's the burden that infrastructure teams at these companies had to, had to take on. And the, the outcome was special purpose systems, which took these eventually consistent primitives and presented them in a way that made sense for those specific product lines, but were not broadly reusable, did not offer composability, did not offer isolation in all the different senses of isolation, including isolation of transactions and isolation of workloads and isolation of data centers, what have you, to their development teams. And this actually got worse with the microservices and the container revolution, because now you don't have just one application which is taking on some of the database level consistency concerns. You have 10, you have 50, you have 200, which are all trying to agree on how to handle failures in the underlying ability of the data platform to actually present a consistent view of the data. So the, the scale problem got solved, but this productivity problem did not get solved. And fundamental to this productivity problem is, is being able to rely on your database and your data platform to present a consistent view of reality to all the applications and services which are integrating through that data. There are so many databases that get classified under the vague category of new SQL. 
and these include we've done shows on these cockroach db spanner volt db tie db now fauna db for the average software engineer this is really daunting to try to understand the subtleties between these different databases can you give us a rubric for examining trade-offs in these different new SQL databases? That's a really good question. I, I agree that the market, at least at least superficially, is is crowded and also confusing. And New SQL is kind of a funny name because people include us, I think correctly include us in this category, even though we, we're not actually SQL. Fauna is a relational NoSQL database. We don't offer SQL syntax, but we do offer joins, firing keys, transactions in Fauna's native query language, which let you accomplish anything you would traditionally accomplish with a with a ORM backed by a SQL database. But effectively, your valuation criteria are, are, are twofold. There's a trade-off between traditionally scale and high availability, which you're trying to minimize. You want maximum scale and maximum high availability. And then there's another dimension of transactional correctness that you're trying to maximize. And these systems all kind of plot out different points on this multidimensional envelope of trade-offs. But what we're trying to do is, is, you know, find what is the absolute peak of maximizing availability, maximizing scale, and never giving up transactional isolation and correctness, which is effectively useful for any mission-critical data application, any data that's irreplaceable that relies on transactionality and, and consistency. So you, you end up with you know the three models of transaction. Transaction consensus, I mentioned, where percolator is effectively correct, although many of the implementations of it are not or don't meet the, the potential guarantees of a percolator model, but it, it gives up multi-data center scale out. And I would include TidyB, FoundationDB in that category. You, you also get the spanner-based systems, which increase scale, increase availability because they don't have a single point of failure around the clock oracle, but it comes at the cost of operational overhead and fundamental data integrity because if you don't manage the clock skews properly, if, if you're not you know, in an environment where the end-to-end software and infrastructure stack is tightly controlled like it is in Google Spanner, you never really know if you're delivering the level of guarantee that, that you, hope, you, you hope to guarantee because if the clocks drift, you know, by definition, they are the synchronization point. If they drift, you don't know because you don't have anything else to synchronize on. And eventually you can detect that the, the, that the drift has exceeded your tolerance. But at that point, you don't know how long you've been in this pathological state where transactional correctness was not actually enforced. So there, there are systems, you know, like Cockroach, although Cockroach has actually deviated quite a bit from Spanner specifically to work around some of these issues, but not all. Um, We're translating this model from Google Spanner in Google Cloud to the public cloud, which is much less reliable, you know, has a lot of downsides. And we we like to believe, you know, we're the third generation of architecture here with Calvin, which which has found a model where, at least as far as these three dimensions are concerned, you don't have to give anything up. You get your strict serializability all the time. Even if clocks skew, it never affects data correctness. You get your scale-out, homogenous, NoSQL-style architecture where you can always add new data centers, you can always add new nodes. It doesn't impact availability. It always improves throughput. 
And you also get one of the things which only Fauna can do outside of Google Spanner and Google Spanner's controlled environment, which is you get, you get fast snapshot reads from any data center. So you effectively get a position on the availability curve, which is otherwise not, you know, not available, I guess, <laughs> where you can read from the system as if it's a NoSQL database that doesn't coordinate at all. You get super fast, single millisecond reads from every data center, you know, distribute your data all around the world, but you never give up transactional correctness the way you do with something like Cassandra. So on the one hand, you know, you, you get your traditional transactional experience on the correctness side. You know it's never going to be violated even if your operations go haywire. But you, you get a scale-out and high availability experience, which is effectively indistinguishable from a NoSQL database. You know, Fauna can lose a minority of data centers and still maintain liveness for, for rights. So if you want to tolerate losing three data centers, you know, deploy seven and you're good to go. The penalty of using atomic clocks to maintain the the consistency and the serializability of your transactions that, that you refer to in that the Spanner paper has does atomic clock skew does that happen regularly? Presumably not. <laughs> I mean, there's it, it takes time to read information, but you know, barring you know quantum entangled. PCI Express cards that you could slot in, you know, there's no better way to synchronize on the physical world than than managing the drift of atomic clocks. And to be clear, atomic clocks do drift. Like someone has to set the time of the clock, but the the drift is so small that you can manage those those windows of ambiguity down to, you know, initially when the Spanner paper came out, it was, you know, nine milliseconds or something like that. I'm told they've pushed it lower down to the two to three millisecond range now. But the problem is that's that's just the beginning. Just having a clock which is well synchronized doesn't mean that your application can access it in a predictable amount of time. So you have the entire software stack above that as well as the hardware stack that has to be completely controlled. You, that's partly why, in my opinion, Google Spanner is relatively expensive. Because you, you can't saturate these machines because if you have some kind of, you know, VM migration, if you have a stall in the page cache behavior, if you have anything else interrupt, you know, the, these systems are not hard real-time systems. They're Linux with many layers of service, you know, service stacks built on top of them. If anything interrupts the flow of, of data in a way that delays accessing what the current timestamp is, you'll lose correctness. And that's the thing which is literally impossible to control in the public cloud, especially if you want to move to a, a multi-cloud or hybrid cloud world. If you're, you, you can't use atomic clocks, even if they are ostensibly available, if they're from different vendors, and you have no way to know if you're actually meeting your tolerance guarantees. You can know in a negative sense, you can know when you've gruesomely failed them, but you can never affirmatively prove that you're actually meeting these guarantees. For the people who are listening to this with the Twitter use case in mind, they're probably thinking like, does this really matter that much if, you know, a tweet gets out of order, you know, because of uh, some atomic clock skew edge case? And they're thinking Twitter is not going to care about the atomic clock skew edge case. They're going to flip a coin and they're going to pick Spanner or FaunaDB. And it's not really going to matter for them. That may or may not be true. But my sense is that there are applications for which this kind of edge case behavior is extraordinarily important. You think about life and death type of software applications 
where you would want a distributed, highly available, consistent database. Can you talk about like what is the application category for which these properties are so important? Like how big is that application category and what exactly are we talking about here? Yeah, I mean, I think that perspective on Twitter is superficially correct. You know, <laughs> right, if exactly. Tweet, if, if tweets are late, fine. If you reply to someone and someone someone else sees the reply before they see the original tweet, like, will they live? Sure, they'll live. But the, the, the impact within Twitter of not having this level of data integrity in the core platform was detrimental twofold. The support burden was much higher because you would have people who just didn't get the product experience they were expecting. You know, the canonical, canonical example of this is, is user privacy. Someone sets their account to be private and then posts something they don't want, they don't want someone else to see. If those two actions aren't strictly serializable, someone else could see the thing before they get the, the privacy change. And then, you know, you violated your, your, your contract, your, your contract of trust with the user, and they, they lose confidence in the platform. You've caused them whatever kind of personal problem um, they were trying to avoid by making this change. But at the same time, there are other aspects of the system which really rely on transactionality and for that reason remained in, in legacy systems much longer because these primitives weren't available. And an obvious one is username registration. If you have people trying to acquire the same unique screen name, you have to pick a winner. You can't clean it up after the fact. But to your, to your broader point, you know, most of the work we do at Fauna is in domains where it's, it's very obvious that this level of, of correctness is critical. So a, a lot of work with financial services, you know, maintaining ledgers, maintaining balance movement, whether that's for credit or for cash or for equity holdings, what have you, it has to be right. Or user-generated content where, you know, it's irreplaceable if you lose it. So that includes, that includes identity accounts, that kind of traditional content, especially you know, some of the work we've been doing with NVIDIA and their, their GeForce platform space. And also e-commerce is a very obvious vertical where you've purchasing and inventory decisions being made. And that could be, you know, you bought something online that has to be shipped to you or it could be you're competing to reserve a concert ticket or a hotel room for which there is only one with, with other people who are trying to do the same thing at the same time for the same price. And I, th I think I think broadly, though, you know, it's kind of like asking, you know, do you want a stronger, weak memory model? Do you want replicated disks or not? Can you work around the issue in any specific domain? Sure, probably. And that's kind of why NoSQL got started the way it did, giving up everything but scale in the in the interests of keeping these products running. But you just don't want to, because it's always better to have a more trustworthy platform to, to build your product on. Let's say we want to deploy FaunaDB, and we want to host a brand new company called SE Daily Twitter. So it's just like Twitter, except it's for Software Engineering Daily listeners only. And we want to be architected to scale even on day one. Describe the architecture of this FaunaDB cluster that we're going to deploy for SE Daily Twitter. So you have two options. You can use Fauna serverless cloud, which is pay-as-you-go utility pricing or you know prepay for a discount, the usual stuff. That gives you immediate access to 
to a global cluster of Fauna nodes, which spans AWS and GCP infrastructure. It'll give you a low latency experience for your, your global your global user base, the global listenership of SE Daily. Then you can rely on us to scale it up behind the scenes as your usage grows and grows and grows. Or say you know you're launching out of the gate to the hundreds of millions of listeners of the podcast. You want to operate your own infrastructure for compliance reasons, security reasons, that kind of thing. You want to specialize the, the hardware profile to make sure you get the maximum bang for your buck. You can run Fauna in your own private cloud or on your own physical hardware. So you can do the same thing we did in our cloud. You can get different regions from different cloud providers. You can spin up the Fauna jar because it's, it's just a Java jar. There's no service dependencies or, or other dependencies beyond the JVM whatsoever. On each machine you've provisioned in each data center, tell them where the other ones are, and let the cluster cohere itself, and then you've the, you've the exact same access to a data platform that you now control that you do if you're using Fauna Cloud. You can provision multiple tenancy contexts. You can have your production and your staging and your test databases all running on the same hardware. You can scale it up and down transparently from the application, all that kind of thing. I think the, the, the big difference here is you, you you don't just get a key value store that's global or a relational store that's locked to a single data center. You get a system that does both. So your entire end-to-end application can be architected for a global user base with low latency local access to the data set from day one. Now, let's say I send out a tweet and that tweet gets written to the FaunaDB instance that I'm communicating with. How does that write get propagated to the other instances? What's the? Uh, I know we can't go, you know, super deeply into the detailed communication protocol between, you know, just be beyond the scope of of the podcast. But give me an overview for the write path. This is one of the critical innovations of Calvin, because in your traditional relational database or your your spanner system or even your percolator systems. The transaction execution and transaction replication are intermingled. So Spanner, for example, elects a leader for each partition, and every key within that partition has to commit to that leader. If those leaders are in different data centers, tough. You have to go coordinate with them, drop locks, come back, resolve the transaction, go back, clean up those locks. What Fauna does is separate the transaction log from the transaction replicas. So if you have a global cluster, you can configure your log to be as many as many data centers in that cluster as you please. All transactions enter into the system and get committed to this log in a durable, replicated, highly available way. Your latency profile for writes is to the majority set of that log that's nearest to you. So if you have a, you know, a North American cluster, you're typically looking at you know in the 50 to 80 millisecond range per transaction commit. All the replicas are reading off this log and applying those transactions in a completely uncoordinated, uncoordinated way locally. So as soon as the transaction hits the local, local replica, it's made visible in that local replica and local clients can see it. So you have essentially a semi-synchronous pipeline that only involves one global round trip on writes and no round trips whatsoever outside the local data center on reads. And that's what really gives you the unique scale-out profile of Fauna and Calvin. 
Now, I would love to go deeper on this SE Daily Twitter example, but I know we're we're running low on time, so I'd like to zoom out and talk a little bit about your experience building this business. I think it's been seven years, if you include the time spent on your sort of consulting expedition. Can you just tell me about what it's like to build a database from scratch and then build a business around that? Why is that hard? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, both of those things are tremendously hard. And that's why there's very few entrants in, in this market to begin with, you know. We basically have Spanner and a handful of startups, fewer than one hand, who've actually delivered a product mar- product to market at all. Amazon doesn't have a system which can guarantee global transactional isolation. Azure doesn't have a system. And essentially it comes down to the fact that, you know, this is a deep tech project. It takes real CS innovation. You're not just applying existing patterns or putting forms online, although there are many, you know, Twitter for one, examples of putting forms online that are tremendously important and successful. But at the same time, the the audience for operational database is very risk averse, especially after people got badly burned by some of the the vendors in the initial, you know, NoSQL days, like Cassandra, for example, and Mongo and that kind of thing. So we're at a point where the industry knows how to evaluate whether these systems are actually correct and will no longer take it on faith from the vendor. But the burden of building them to be correct is tremendously high because it's it's cutting edge. It's cutting edge research, both on the academic side and on the industry side. Tell me more about how you differentiate in your go-to-market strategy, because I've talked to a lot of people who are building various services that they're selling to developers, or they're selling to, to, I guess, the CIO at a large bank, for example. The go-to-market, you know, obviously this is not like a a quote-unquote business podcast, but uh, the go-to-market experience for selling developer tools is really interesting and it's kind of a, an art and a science that hasn't really been talked about very much. So what what have you learned that you can share with the audience? We, we've pursued a kind of a barbell model. We offer Fauna and Serverless Cloud, you know, for the individual developer, for the hobbyist, for the, the, the new startup with only a handful of people. We also offer the, the on-prem or the enterprise edition. For the big business that has existing product lines that, that's running, you know, an enterprise-style decision process, and our, our sales models internally internally reflect both of those things. But I think one thing that differentiates our market from your, you know, traditional now traditional bottoms-up kind of grassroots developer adoption path for something like, you know, an orchestration tool or, or that kind of thing, is that for us, our customers are all making the same type of decision. Because no matter how small you are, you still want your database to be correct and you want it to scale because you aspire to grow your product big. In some ways, that makes our job easier because we, we can speak the same language to the entire range of the market. But I think in some sense, the, the usual conventional wisdom applies where you want to make your system easy to get started with, free to try, e- easy to create initial experiences of success in the developer community, and then that can translate into the opportunity to compete for enterprise deals or to get pulled along with a small startup that's growing fast. I think making a product that works, that meets a defined need, that's easy to use, easy, easy to adopt, has flexible pricing, you know, those things never really change. One of the things that has changed 
and I think affects in particular the open source, the open source community a lot, is we, we see a strong movement in the small and, and mid-market category of customers to manage cloud services. So I think if you're starting a new business now, it behooves you to make sure that you launch a cloud service out of the gate. Because if it's open source or what have you, you may get mindshare, you may get adoption, but you're just not going to capture you know, the long-term business relationships with the mid-market and startups who are looking to, to outsource that operational burden and now even transform kind of the, the TCO experience by moving to serverless and utility price models, which are directly aligned with their business value. And, you know, one example of this on the analytics side is obviously Snowflake, where they're taking advantage of cloud economics, similar to the way Fauna Cloud is, and delivering a, a fundamentally better experience across the board. And we see that pattern continuing to penetrate farther and farther into the enterprise. And it'll be a long time, if ever, before, you know, all these legacy systems and legacy buying patterns are gone. But everyone's building for a cloud world now, too. And if you're launching a developer tool and you don't do that, you're not going to get very far. Evan Weaver, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking. You too. Thanks for the opportunity. Wow.